Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are spending the summer in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a big word, but it simply means repetition of the law or repeating of the law. It is a book comprised of a series of sermons Moses gave the people of God before they were to enter the promised land. The people of God spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a time of formation, identity, and unexpected lessons. These divine words come to us out of the wilderness. The average person can go about 100 hours without water in average temperatures. Here in Phoenix, that might be a little bit different. As the temperature rises, that number shrinks. But three to four days is what's typical. If you're hiking Camelback Mountain uh, in the summertime here, you might be able to go about seven hours without water. And I've gone like six and barely made it. But it's interesting how quickly and how close we are to death simply by not having water. Within three to four days, we would be in trouble. And I want us to think about that because when we think about how how powerful we are as humans, how intelligent we are, how technologically advanced we are, simply removing something like liquid and we're gone within a week. And it's interesting to think about too because in this story that we're going to look at today, the people of God are without water. And as we hear the story of their complaints, we start to realize they're in, a, in this wilderness situation where it's extremely hot and they need water fast. This summer we're going through a series called Out of the Wilderness, and we've been looking at Deuteronomy chapter 8, kind of tracking uh, the story of the people of God uh, through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book, the, the, the Deuteronomy means repetition of the law. And as you kind of dive into Deuteronomy, what you find is that it's, it's Moses giving a series of sermons to the people of God as they come out of the wilderness and they're getting ready to move into the promised land. So Deuteronomy captures these different sermons or messages that Moses gives the people to prepare them to go into the land. And most of these messages have to do with the law that was given to them in the wilderness, their identity and calling as a particular people. So Moses looks backward at what's happened since they have left Egypt, and then he looks forward looks forward to what they're about to encounter. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the, kind of the subtitle of this passage, uh, if you're following, says, Do not forget the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 has to do with remembering what God has just taken us through as his people. Do not forget these stories. These experiences were formative for us as a community. Deuteronomy 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 15, as Moses is giving this address, he says, He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, or wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with venomous snakes and scorpions. Sounds a little bit like Phoenix. <laughs> and he brought you water out of hard rock. And he brought you water out of hard rock. For those hearing the sermon from Moses would know what this means. And, and some of you know this story of water from the rock, and, and you are ready to go back to remembering this experience in the wilderness. He brought you water from hard rock. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 
chapter 17, the people of God have left Egypt. They've been out of Egypt for a little more than a month. And Egypt, this is this, this place where they were enslaved to the Egyptians. They cried out to God. They were oppressed. God comes, delivers them uh, miraculously, leads them through the Red Sea. Uh, the story of Moses parting the Red Sea with his staff. The Israelites go through. The Red Sea closes. It washes away all of their oppressors. And they're free. This miraculous salvation for this people. We talked about last week, as soon as they get out of, uh, of Egypt, they stop at this oasis, and then they move out into the wilderness, and they're starving. They don't have food. And God provides this unexpected provision of manna and quail. He provides for them their physical needs with food. And here we have the next story that takes place in their journey in Exodus chapter 17. And the story is about seven verses long, and I just want to read it. You can follow along with me. But hear the word of the Lord. Hear what happens in this story. Exodus 17.1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water. They were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Remember that word grumbled from last week. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So one of the things that kind of gets lost in this storytelling is the emotions behind it. If Moses says something like, they're about to stone me, I'm guessing that Moses is in full-out panic mode. He's fearing for his life. This is an intense moment. And then verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this story of the Israelites running out of water. And remember the, the hundred hours. If you're in the wilderness and you go out of, run out of water and you've got maybe four children, a bunch of livestock, you start to panic pretty quickly. And even though they've come from this experience uh, where God has miraculously intervened and provided, they're in full panic mode here. And in fact, Moses gives a name to this place, the, uh, the, the Meribah and the Massah. It, it means a, a testing and a quarreling. Something's happening in relation, the, the relationship between God and his people in the midst of the wilderness. And as we've been talking through the series, an unexpected lesson happens again in the midst of this extremely challenging, difficult circumstance. The passage ends with this question that I think is a very haunting question. Is the Lord among us? or not? Is God with us? Maybe you've gone through an emotion, an experience, 
some sort of situation in your life where you've had that story, you've had that question, you've cried out in that same way, is God with me? I feel like that's something that we all experience in different seasons of our life. Where is the Lord in the midst of this seemingly desperate circumstance? But as we kind of look at the story and unpack it, one scholar says this about it, and I love it. It's th- this elegant story is a dual commentary on one human nature and two divine character. In fact, I would, I would say, really, the, the whole story of, of what we find in Scripture can be found in the seven verses. There's a story of human nature and divine character. Humans who react to their circumstance probably in a similar way that we would react, that me and you. This is their story, but this is also our story. And then there's the story of the divine character of God that intervenes. And I want to look at those two things, the human nature and the divine character, as we kind of unpack it. Because the human nature, their circumstances lead them to how they act in this passage. Their circumstances lead them to act a certain way. And the first thing that they do is they forget what God has done in their past. And I think this happens all the time. And it's more than just like a, what have you done for me lately, God? But it's a, in the same way that we are desperate for water after you know, such a short period of time, we, we live life in these little stretches and it's like, we don't know where God, where God is or what to do next, if he's still with us. Maybe this season will be dead. We have no idea. As we anticipate the future, as we try to interpret what's happening in the present, it's so, we so quickly just forget how God showed up in the past. And I think it's, it's uh, we, we did a spiritual gifting uh, assessment today. We're doing a couple of those this summer. But one of the spiritual gifts is faith. Some people just, no matter what circumstance they're going through, there's just this strong faith that, that I know that God is faithful. I'm not one of those people. When I go through circumstances, I so quickly forget how God has shown up in the past, how he's provided in the past, how he's taken care of me. And I so quickly forget that. I love what C.S. Lewis says about God's people. He says, Christians need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. And how true is that? To be reminded of this story. And this is what I think Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. He's reminding the people of God of their journey, of their story, of what God has done in the past. But when you're in the midst of a circumstance like this, where you know that there is no water, and you're desperate, and the kids are crying, and there's no prospects in sight, how quickly we forget how God is faithful how God steps up. The first thing they do is it's they, they, they forget. Right after they leave, uh, leave Egypt and are miraculously delivered, right after God provides manna and quail, here they are saying, what in the world are we doing out here? The second thing that they do, so they, they forget what God has done. Um, they blame Moses for their circumstances. They blame Moses, the one who was the one that led them through this, that delivered them, that... that that helped set them free from 400 years of oppression, who was the hero in the story. Now they're blaming him for what they're doing, their circumstance. How quickly they turn to this. They're not even accusing God. They're accusing Moses for leading him out here. And they're saying, why don't we go back to Egypt? At least we had food in our bellies there. They look backwards, longing for this life that was terrible. And all the blame falls on Moses for their circumstances. 
And here's something that I think is very natural for us to do as humans. We forget, and then when we find ourselves in circumstances, we cast blame. We deflect blame to someone else. Blame is holding other people responsible for our misfortunes. It's holding other people responsible for our misfortunes. And a lot of times we have the right to do that because other people are responsible for our misfortune. But blame's also a very dangerous thing. It's a dangerous way to live. And it's interesting, as we, as we blame people and we, we project responsibility away from our circumstances, even when it's warranted, something happens inside of us. Because blame is kind of like this short-term fix for challenging circumstances. And we can blame people and place the responsibility on them and rightfully do that. And we have every right to do that when we are placed in situations that aren't our fault. But we think that makes our situation better. It's, a, it's almost like this coping, advice, coping device that we use uh, to survive. It's their fault. It's Moses' fault for bringing us out here. It's this natural human thing that we do. Psychology Today has this article about blame, and it talked about this. It's this uh, illusionary advantage to being a victim. It provides a convenient justification to life's unsatisfactory conditions, but you're not made to be a victim. Even in the midst of things where you're placed in situations that aren't your fault, and you're desperate, and you're just trying to survive, that's not what you're designed to live like. Blame also sheds the necessary work to get out of unsatisfactory conditions. And this is something that happens is as we blame others, as we deflect blame to other people, even when we have the right to do so, we actually can imprison ourselves to bitterness and resentment. Our feelings may be justified, but we give away our power. We give away our ability to move through circumstances. God doesn't design us to be victims. God designs us to be redeemed, to be healed, to flourish in this world. And blame is this easy fix that I do all the time. When I think about my own, the way I operate, I've, I've talked about how I'm a recovering cynic. I love to think, first of all, that the sky's falling. And then I'm this verbal processor. My wife loves it. I may not even mean it, but I just, you know, get it out. And then she carries it, and I feel better. But then I love to just stay in this, this circumstance where I'm a victim. And I have every right to do it. But then I forget God desires to remove us from circumstances where we're desperate, dying, barely hanging on, withering, and our soul is weary. For these people, they blame Moses for this circumstance, forgetting that they were in oppression in Egypt. And this is a very human thing to do, to cast blame. But we weren't designed to be victims. Blame is something that robs us. Yesterday, I uh, finally had my graduation for seminary. Yeah, you don't have to, we already clapped for that before, so <laughs> I finished like two months ago. Uh, but I, I was talking, uh, here in town, Fuller, has a, Fuller Theological Seminary has a campus, and they have a school of theology and a school of psychology. 
And one of the administrators is, who's in the School of uh, Psychology kind of works in the main office, and they're closing down uh, the campus because everything's going online, the world's becoming superficial, education's getting water, yeah, all of that. But anyways, <laughs> everything's going online. And um, so I was kind of talking to this administrator about you know, what she's going to do. And, and one of the things that I, I really appreciated, she's a, she's a professional counselor, and, and uh, whenever I'd go in to talk to her like, uh, on, on campus, I'd go in to do a paper, use the great library, uh, on her desk, she had this prayer that was just posted. It was the Prayer of Serenity. And it was written by this old theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, um, which people aren't named like that anymore. They don't name them like they used to. But when it comes to our circumstances, when it comes to these, these difficult circumstances where things are out of our control, when we want to cast blame because someone else might be responsible for the bad things that we do, um, this prayer I find is so helpful. And maybe you've heard it before the prayer of serenity. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things that I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, and trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. I love that prayer. That whole idea of grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the thing I can and the wisdom to have the difference. I think that's something that's so hard for our human nature. So countercultural to the way that we think and the way that we so easily try to cope with challenging circumstances. There's some things that are outside of our control that require trust. And there's some things that in our, are in our control that require great courage. When we think about what the Israelites are going here, no water, desperate, trying to figure out how to provide for their family, they forget so quickly God's faithfulness and what he's done. And they turn so quickly to blame Moses, who was like the hero, casting blame on him. Then the divine character that's found in this story, the divine character of God. Three things that God does in this story that, that remind us of his grace. The first is that God's presence shows up. The same thing happened last week. Is his glory showed up out of the wilderness in this cloud. His divine presence shows up. And he says to Moses, I will stand before you by the rock of Horeb. I will physically, I'll, I'll be there. My presence will be with you. This is a challenging circumstance. You don't know how you're going to get out yet, but I'm going to be with you in the midst of this circumstance. What's interesting about this detail is that Horeb, the rock of Horeb, just so happens to be the place where Moses first receives his calling from God. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, Exodus chapter 3, he's out tending sheep in this field, and he comes across this burning bush. And it says that the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And it's here at Horeb. And God calls Moses here. In the midst of this circumstance where, where Moses is like fearing for his life, God shows up at the place that he first called him and says, I'm with you. My presence is here. In the midst of this, you're not alone. Then God guides Moses on what to do. He instructs him. He gives him the next steps. What's interesting is when they travel through the wilderness, God doesn't give them the 40-year plan. 
God shows them the next step day by day. He says, here's what you're going to do next. And he instructs them, probably kind of strange, to take your staff and to hit this rock. If you're Moses, it's like, this is like crazy. Like, what in the world is going to, this is like desperation mode. Like, he takes the elders with him. But he trusts God because again and again, he's seen God do things, especially with this staff. It's the same staff that he uses when the plagues come to turn the Nile into blood. It's the same staff that he raises to part the Red Sea. It's like, I, 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 I wish that we had some sort of staff like that today. I don't know what it is, but, but God instructs him. He guides them with this tool. And he hits the rock. And then the third thing is God provides water. It's unexpected grace. This water pours out from this rock. A lot of uh, like archaeologists and biblical scholars and historians are trying to, you know, what, what happens with this miracle? Where does this water come from? I heard one person saying that when you see kind of this land, the desert, uh, there's, there's this underwater kind of like current and river that flows. Kind of like we, we've heard about that here in Phoenix. There's actually water that's underneath us, but we don't see it because we're a desert. And God makes visible and real what's right underneath the surface for these followers, for God's people. They have no idea where they're going to get water. And it's right below them this whole time. And God shows up, this miracle happens, and the water becomes real. It emerges from the ground, flowing, giving them life. God provides water. His presence shows up. He gives instruction and guidance, and he provides water. And what we see with the, the human nature, and as we kind of been tracking the story, and they're grumbling and they're quarreling, we think, God has just brought you through Egypt. He's done this thing after thing after thing, and you're still quarreling. You're still grumbling. At what point does God just say, enough? You don't deserve it. But the nature of God is grace and love. And here he is providing unexpectedly water that gives life for his people. This is the story of God's unexpected grace that comes out of the wilderness. Unexpected provision, unexpected grace that is life-giving to these people who are in this 100-hour window and desperate. They go through this experience where they forget God, they're blaming, and all of a sudden, undeservedly, water comes to them. This story, as we look forward, what we find is, again, the story is, is, is a story of, of God's grace found throughout scriptures. By the time we get to the New Testament, what we find is that the people of God are still celebrating this event, water from the rock. There's this feast of tabernacles that they would have every year, and they would remember we were desperate. We were in this 100-hour window. We didn't know what was going to happen. We were going crazy, saying things that we shouldn't have said about Moses, and yet God still shows up and provides for us. And every year they would celebrate this at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus shows up at this feast. Jesus shows up. And he's celebrating as well God's unexpected grace and provision. And as he's celebrating this feast, he starts to take this story that happened in their past. And he starts to explain his purpose in this world through this story. In John chapter 7, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, Rivers of living water flow from within them. 
at this event, at this celebration of God's unexpected grace where he provided water, Jesus shows up and says, whoever is thirsty, let him drink. Let him come to me. We start to understand that the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is this unexpected grace when we were desperate, when we were weary, when we were casting blame, when we were forgetting the things that God did. Jesus shows up in our life and offers us living water. Jesus takes this story and we start to understand the story of Scripture through the lens of Christ, that Jesus is the center here. The Apostle Paul picks up on this too in his writing in 1 Corinthians 10. He's talking about the story and he says, They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. From Jesus, this unexpected grace for our lives. When our souls are weary, when we don't deserve it, he shows up and he provides life that is truly life, life that is eternal. This is the story of God's people. It's a word for it. It's a Christophany, an appearance in the Old Testament, a Christophany, where God, it seems like Christ shows up here in the story of the living water. In the, in the desert, in the wilderness, the water that gave life, Paul says that was Christ. He was the rock from which it flowed. Christ is the author of life, the savior of life, and the redeemer of life. We come to understand God's grace through him. It's unexpected grace of salvation that comes to all of us. I'm always confused as to why. I think about my human nature. I think about how when I go, my my world is very small. I'm very narcissistic. Um, When things don't go the way that I want, I wonder where God is. When things don't happen exactly as I want them to, I blame others. My human nature is this nature of brokenness. And yet in the midst of that, again and again, we see that the character of God is to show up to give us unexpected grace and to give us life. Water for our soul. He pours into us. He pours into us. There's an old hymn that was written by William Williams. And William Williams, another one of those good old names that they just don't name them like they used to back in 1745. It says, Guide me, O thou great Redeemer, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak and thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloud cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. Be thou still my strength and shield. Today, we experience this living water. In the midst of whatever you're going through, in the midst of how difficult your circumstance is right now, Christ shows up and gives us life. That starts with a relationship with him that leads to eternity. This is something that we're invited to as a church. We're invited to as a people to enter into the story of eternity where God unexpectedly gives us grace in the midst of our circumstance. And this is something that 
I feel like in my own life especially, it's like every hundred hours. I need this renewal. I need this, this God to pour into me. There's the saving work of God, and then there's this renewing work of God that happens over and over again. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what circumstances you are in life. I don't know how, how bad it is. It could be someone else's fault. But the invitation today is this, to come to the fountain and drink, to allow Christ to unexpectedly provide life, saving life, renewing life for us. A couple of questions to reflect on, and then Matt will come back up to close us with a time of communion. First question to consider, who in your midst thirsts for living water? Maybe it's not you, but it's people around you. Who in your midst thirsts for living water? Do you remember God's faithfulness in your circumstances, or are you blaming others? What surprising resources are available and unforeseen in your life that you just need God to bring to the surface? Ask God's presence to reveal those things. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to spend some time in communion. The communion for us is this remembrance of this unexpected grace that has been given to us, that in the midst of us, in terrible circumstances, when we don't deliver it, Christ gives us life and gives us grace. We take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken open for us on the cross. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. And all of the ways that our circumstances are broken through the death and resurrection of Jesus, restoration and healing comes. Life, eternal water, that is the water that, that keeps us from ever thirsting again. We go and we remember and then we proclaim. Today as we consider these questions and as we reflect, we come to the table and say, God, show up. Show up in our life. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for this story that is thousands of years old. Lord, as, as Moses showed up and started reminding the people in Deuteronomy of their journey, how they were formed over these experiences of the wilderness, Lord, we just ask that you would reveal to us in our journey the same story, this reminder. So out of the wilderness, Lord, we would experience your grace. That in the midst of circumstances that we're going through that may not even be our fault, that cause a weariness, that cause a panic, that we try to cope with, Lord, that we would receive life from you. That you would carry us in our weakness that you would provide for us in our scarcity. Lord, that we would allow others to help carry us as well. Lord, we we see the Israelite story and and we don't blame them for what they go through. We, We resonate with what they go through. And as humans, Lord, we trust that your nature That this isn't a story about our circumstances. It's a story about your heart for us. That we would encounter you today. That you'd give life. That you'd give healing. That you'd give hope. That you'd give wisdom. 
water from the rock, Lord. Pour into us today. In your sons and we pray.